This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So we're now set to begin our live stream Q&A session where the speakers in our symposium will answer a selection of thought-provoking questions from the audience. With that, I would like to invite our speakers back into the Zoom room. I, I just want to ask one timely question, start off with one question for Chip Schooley. So this is uh, from, from one of the students in the course. Uh, UCSD is currently planning and implementing its Back to Learn program, large-scale campus-wide testing for novel coronaviruses in the fall in what seems to be a test-trace-isolate-support approach. It is estimated that by monitoring 60 to 90% of the campus population, greater than 90% chance of detecting virus spread at a time when less than 10 of the 60,000 members of the campus population are virus shedding can be achieved. The campus, however, is not a closed system. And how often would retesting have to occur for such a strategy to be successful? Without a treatment or vaccine in sight by the fall, would we be taking a risk on at-risk individuals and risking some fatality for the sake of a greater good? Let's start with the question about how often we would have to test. Based on the um, uh, modeling that Natasha Martin and Victor Diagotola have done, the, the uh, testing will have to be done once a month. So it would be a lot of testing. There's no question about it. Um, all of this has to be taken in the context of how much activity there is in the community. And if there's a lot of viral activity in the community, we won't be back at school. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, and I'm concerned about the trends we've seen over the last several uh, several weeks, in fact, about uh, both around the country and frankly here in Southern California. But the goal of this is if uh, things are quiet enough to get back, that we can prevent uh, there from being an outbreak that we don't know about. So it's really more of an attempt to uh, if the society is getting back to work, to have us be one of the safer places to be so that we know what's going on before uh, something happens. It's not an attempt to have us be uh, reckless and get back uh, when others can't. It's an effort to be able to be vigilant when we do get back to mitigate any damage that might occur from spread of the virus. Okay, thank you. Victor? Okay. Um... I'm gonna go with my next question uh, from CARTA student Jason Adams, and this is uh, directed towards Manuela Rapatelu. Uh, and the question is, in what ways does intra-individual variation in the human gut microbiota uh, influence salmonella, or I guess any other enteric pathogen, if they're better examples, in terms of disease severity? I think, uh, Jason, you ask a very important questions about uh, individual vari variability to susceptibility to in gastrointestinal infection. And what we know is indeed that the gut microbiota plays an important role in uh, providing colonization resistance to pathogens. For example, the use of uh, um, antibiotics, uh, that uh, definitely provides uh, an increased susceptibility to enteric pathogens like salmonella, and uh, there is definitely uh, individual variability that we don't completely understand yet. But what I can tell you is that there are some uh, organisms that are known to provide colonization resistance to salmonella. For example, there are clostridia that produce uh, um, short-chain fatty acids that are important modulator of uh, intestinal immunity and epithelial cell homeostasis, 
and that these uh, are, known, are well known to provide uh, colonization resistance and uh, to help maintaining uh, the gut um, well balanced. And in fact, one of the consequences of inflammation induced by salmonella is to kill those clostridia uh, with the goal of uh, providing um, a niche for the pathogen. But that, yes, definitely the gut microbiome and individual variations are important in uh, determining uh, susceptibility or resistance to enteric pathogens in general. Uh, thank you, Manuela. Uh, back to Elizabeth for the next question. Okay, um, this is a question from Janelle Giller, um, and it's for Mandy Lewis. Uh, thank you so much for the informational presentation. My question is, what does data show regarding the impact of oral probiotic supplements on the vaginal microbiome? And can it shift the microbiome to a lactobacillus dominant microbiome? Uh, can, can probiotics shift the microbiome to a lactobacillus dominant microbiome? One of the problems with the current uh, commercially available probiotics is that they are uh, intestinal lactobacilli mainly. There are a number of studies going on with vaginal lactobacilli, um, which seem to have a much uh, more prominent effect on women's health. Um, including the ability to colonize the vagina, whereas the intestinal strains uh, are incapable of doing that. Okay. Thanks, Mandy. I guess uh, I'll uh, take uh, the next question, and uh, this will be uh, directed to uh, Sujan. Um, and the question is, why isn't an ADE, why isn't ADE a problem for infection with other viruses uh, aside from dengue, or is it? Um, this is a, the, the question related to ADE is a really important one, not just in the context of dengue infections, virus infections, but we think it may be applicable to other infectious diseases where you have this immunological cross-reactivity. Um, in that this cross-reactivity could be good. And um, Sue, Susan Keck just gave a beautiful presentation on how Jenner used it to his advantage to create this first concept of vaccination from giving cowpox to eradicate smallpox now. And so the cross-reactivity is good in that case. And unfortunately, with diseases such as dengue, uh, we're finding out that this cross-reactivity, besides being good, can also play a pathogenic role, a bad role. And in, instead of providing this cross-protective immunity, you could actually come down with severe form of these different viral infections. And um, in the current time in trying to bring our focus back to COVID, in fact, there are um, several investigators in the coronavirus field who are looking into the dengue field, what we know about ADE, and I'm thinking perhaps there may be issues related to ADE. For instance, there are young, healthy people who are coming down with severe coronavirus, severe COVID. It's not just a disease that causes severe disease only in the elderly or with comorbidities. And one of the hypotheses uh, surrounding why these young, healthy individuals are coming down with severe COVID disease may be related to ADE due to these um, do these people's exposure to these common cold-causing coronaviruses, which are mild, but there is enough cross-reactive immunity 
that you can imagine under certain conditions and certain people when that antibody response, or it could even be T-cell response, is no longer good enough to protect, but instead now causing the more severe form of infection. So we think despite the field taking multiple years, as I explained in my talk, over 50 years to really understand this concept of ADE using animal models and using epidemiologic field studies spanning multiple decades, multiple countries, um, we can apply what we've learned from the dengue Zika field and try to see how we can develop um, better vaccines against um, you know, the coronaviruses, but in particular against COVID. So we think this concept of AD is really important and there is no reason why it has to be specific uh, for the flavivirus field. Um, the next question I have is from Gerata, and the question is, and maybe this is, uh, Sue can answer this best, what is uh, the best guess about the possibility that no vaccine will actually be possible for COVID-19 in the long term? What's the possibility? <laughs> well, um, I mean, I guess we've had our, in history, we've had our share of uh, challenges with certain pathogens uh, from, you know, HIV, to malaria, uh, being NTB being very notable vaccine uh, vaccines that have not led to the successes that one would hope. Um, we, uh, I, I, my, my honest feeling is that there is this virus, COVID nineteen is not SARS CoV two is not going to be uh, a as as much of a challenge. I think in part because it's not one of these shapeshifters uh, like we see with HIV, for instance, and, and other pathogens that do um, uh, have ways of, of evading by changing the antigenic profile that the, the pathogen has. Uh, and also we already have evidence that the antibodies that are being produced can be protective and neutralizing. So there are some viruses for which it is more difficult to develop neutralizing antibodies, particularly HIV. So I, I feel like this virus isn't um, holding those kinds of uh, uh, properties that have been uh, historically more challenging to deal with, but of course it does have evasive features. We know it's um, changing the interferon response very profoundly. We know that the pathology that is causing the death is due to over, uh, over exuberant immune responses. Uh, so those, you know, understanding the nature by which this virus is contributing, leading to those, uh, those changes is going to be important. But um, just my, my immunological gut tells me that uh, we are going to develop a vaccine that will be uh, protective. And I, I honestly think what's gonna be important is that the vaccines are being um, currently tested, that we focus not only on the spike protein, which is what people are, but consider the other proteins in the virus as well. I'm a little bit nervous about the vaccines that just focus on the spike protein in some, of, in some ways for the um, antibody-mediated enhancement that Sujan just was talking about, I think that could um, be a complicating factor of vaccines that just focus on the S protein, but that's just my, my opinion. Thank you. Okay, um, I'm going to pose the next question actually to uh, Nisi Varki. Um, and this came up uh, during the course of all the presentations from a listener. Given that nearly every talk, uh, including my own, I guess, talked about sialic acid. Um, why is this such a common molecule for infectious disease uh, pathogenesis? Yeah, hi, thank you, good question. Well, um, as I showed in one of my slides, and many of you actually showed the slides, 
of the cell surface being decorated with glycans, glycoproteins and glycolipids. And at the very tip of all of these glycans is the sugar nine carbon salic acid. So the salic acids at the very tip of all the glycans at the very edge of the sugar coating of each cell. So it's there available and that's what most of the viruses and pathogens see as they're traveling by, either in the bloodstream or wherever. So these salic acids not only interact with pathogens, they also interact with circulating cancer cells, platelets, immune cells. So they are really, so even in, I think, yeah, the MERS virus was, even though everyone was talking about the protein-protein interaction, there was a salic acid interaction that was discovered. Um, So like the human influenza virus recognizes the salic acid, which is used to bind and invade, and you can inhibit that using Tamiflu. So we're hoping that something like that is similar, is found the interaction with the other viruses as well. And that would help with the treatment. Thanks, Nissi. I guess it's true that the sialic acid receptor uh, sig-like family in humans is one of the most rapidly evolving uh, regions of the human genome. Does that, I think, lend uh, credence to the importance in evolution? Right. So that's what piqued our interest early on, that this evolved, rapidly evolving SIGLEX, which is the salic acid recognizing receptors, um, have been associated with a lot of the evolutionary events that have happened over the centuries. Yep. So um, some of the SIGLEX, for example, are present on cancer cells, and that might influence the way the cancer cells invade and metastasize as well. Thank you. Okay. I have a question for Victor, and this one uh, comes from, from Pascal. And is, the question is, is there evidence that group B strep was a major problem long before animal husbandry? Ah, that's um, a good question. I don't think we have um, the uh, historical um, uh, data on um, ancient uh, evolution, but we do have a lot of evidence uh, that uh, there are human-specific features of uh, group B strep uh, infection and immunity. For example, uh, group B strep has um, molecules that uh, are virulence determinants, which uh, target uh, specifically human IgA, but not uh, IgA from uh, closely related species and the experimental animals uh, only target uh, human factor H um, and uh, not other complement regulatory uh, uh, proteins. The most other uh, important medical uh, incidence of GBS disease other than humans is in mastitis in cows Uh, but those strains seem very distantly related from humans, and there's not a lot of evidence of exchange. However, uh, pets, uh, like dogs and cats, can rarely get uh, disease uh, from their human owners. And there are aquatic uh, forms of group B strep in marine mammals and in fish, 
which do seem to have the potential for uh, transmission back and forth and share virulence factors and genetic uh, profiles uh, with humans. So um, perhaps uh, the advent of uh, fishing and aquaculture as a subset of um, agriculture may have been uh, an accelerator. Um, all these differences, though, pose a great challenge uh, to modeling of group A strep and other, you know, pathogens like group, uh, group B strep, group A strep, Staph aureus, in anim animals, uh, mice, rabbits, because they have such unique features. Uh, some of the toxins that drive the pathogenesis in humans don't target uh, the cells in the experimental animals. Uh, the superantigens, which can give you toxic shock syndrome, uh, don't uh, tend to react uh, and produce the clonal expansion of the T cells in the experimental animals, which makes therapeutic development and vaccine development challenging because you worry that uh, a, a candidate uh, therapeutic or vaccine will uh, that performs best in animals uh, may not be the one that ultimately performs best in humans when you go to the large uh, phase two and phase three trials. I will uh, have a question here actually uh, for Elizabeth uh, uh, right uh, back at you. And um, this, let me find out who this uh, question was from because it was a really um, uh, thoughtful one. Uh, so um, this is from uh, a CARTA student uh, named Nico. Uh, why did artemisin resistance of plasmodium only develop once it was used in its synthetic form and not during the thousands of years before when it was used as artemisia annua, sweet wormwood, as a natural uh, drug? Does such knowledge affect the development of new animalarial drugs in labs like your own? Yeah, um, yes, and I, I would say that, that this is probably, um, you know, a question, the, the streetlight effect as well. It's actually very hard to test for uh, artemisinin and resistance. Um, it's actually difficult to test for most uh, resistance to most anti-malarial drugs um, because uh, it's mostly just correlation with molecular markers, um, because it's very unlike, you know, testing to see if strep are resistant to ampicillin or whatever antibiotic you're using, where you can easily culture the bacteria out from your bloodstream and then put them on, on a plate with a filter disc. You know, taking a parasite out, um, especially in an area with, with, with poor resources, and then taking them into cell culture and then testing them after a few days to see if they, they respond uh, to a drug is actually incredibly difficult. Um, so um, I would say it pro there probably was resistance, uh, at, but we just weren't able to measure it because we were only looking, you know, where we could, where there was light. Okay, thanks, Elizabeth. So this is a question for Chip, and it's to what extent um, might COVID-2 be a mild childhood disease and a more severe in adults, and would change in the immune system during adolescence possibly account for this? The, that's also a great question, and uh, the, uh, there does seem to be quite a bit of difference in the frequency with which younger people become ill, 
uh, when they get infected uh, compared to older people. Uh, it's also true that um, people who are younger tend to uh, shed less virus uh, during the course of their illness. Uh, now, it's hard to separate those two out because in general, the more severely ill you are with this, uh, with this disease, the, more, uh, the higher the titers of the virus. So they go kind of hand in hand. One of the curious things that may also be an issue with vaccine development is that in the uh, vaccine studies done in animal models, uh, younger animals tend to be much more responsive uh, to vaccines uh, than older animals. And it may turn out that we will have to have different strategies for older people. And by that I mean people in their 30s, uh, not, uh, not just people who are, are slightly older than, than uh, Victor and I. And um, when you um, think about that, you might have to have different, uh, different uh, uh, either vaccines in general or different va vaccination regimens, different vaccine doses, different adjuvants uh, to be able to sufficiently stimulate the, uh, uh, the adult immune response for lasting immunity. It's also true that immunity to this, virus, to this class of viruses drops more rapidly uh, than, say, influenza and some of the other viruses we encounter. And that may, may be one of the reasons why this virus, which evolves more slowly from the molecular perspective in populations, can still come back and cause recurrent waves of infection through the population at three- and four-year intervals. So uh, I think we have a lot to learn about differences in the immune response uh, that occur uh, in this virus compared to, um, to older people. We still don't understand the uh, recently described syndrome uh, that we're seeing in kids, uh, which is a, uh, uh, a hyper-inflammatory multi-organ uh, 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 syndrome, very much like Kawasaki's disease that we only have recognized in the last several weeks uh, and only in Europe and in, in the US. Uh, was not seen in tens of thousands of, of cases uh, in uh, uh, China and and in the East. Um, I'm glad we have Dr. Nazay here to uh, explain to us the the reason for this. So, Victor, what are your thoughts about this? Do you think? Uh, well, yeah. So, as a pediatric uh, infectious disease doctor, we would see a lot of uh, patients with the uh, syndrome known as uh, Kawasaki disease, of which uh, there is uh, some. Um, overlap in the clinical uh, features, uh, as well as uh, toxic shock syndrome, which could uh, complicate uh, staph or strep infections. Um, you know, I think uh, this uh, clearly would suggest that there are environmental cofactors or immunogenetic uh, predispositions, which have been well documented in Kawasaki disease, uh, for example. Um, and uh, another factor I wonder is whether um, there are uh, special aspects of uh, immune senescence uh, as we age or just the cumulative um, damage that occurs to our lungs living in a, a world that is not pristine but polluted uh, that are below clinical detection until they get a life-threatening challenge uh, like COVID-19 uh, pneumonia and, um, and that children just not have not accrued uh, that uh, amount of um, change over time, which could be uh, 
uh, interfering with normal epithelial uh, immune responses. Uh, it's also possible maybe that the, or the, uh, the virus has a completely different um, uh, spread uh, and is more of a systemic viremic uh, disease in children associated with you know, minimal immune response in the majority of patients, but then the potential for this delayed immune-mediated disease in uh, the uh, unfortunate few. There's you know, quite a few other diseases uh, like um, Epstein-Barr virus or poliovirus, where if you encounter these viruses very young in life, uh, you're very likely to have you know, quite a difference, sometimes you know, asymptomatic or common cold uh, uh, experience, whereas people uh, experiencing them later in life have much more inflammatory potential and much more potential for the serious symptoms that you normally associate with those diseases. Uh, I'm gonna uh, uh, look on my list here and I have a question uh, for uh, Mandy Lewis. Um, uh, what aspects of human culture, um, the way we uh, interact in our society could affect uh, the vaginal microbiome of women? Well, I would expect that there are likely to be many human behaviors that could influence the vaginal microbiome, um, including sexual um, behaviors, family planning, menstruation, so-called hygienic behaviors, um, as well as other intravaginal and genital cutting practices uh, that happen um, in different places. So, you know, potential mechanisms by which those behaviors might change the microbiome haven't really been extensively studied, uh, but it does appear, you know, that, you know, from what we know, sex partners seem to share your genital microbiomes. Um, the microbiome can change, um, microbiome changes can be triggered by menses um, and also the use of hormonal contraception. Um, and then we also know that uh, vaginal washing has been linked with higher risk types of vaginal microbiomes, possibly by eliminating beneficial bacteria, but this requires more study. And so I think, you know, one can imagine a number of different ways that these kinds of practices could be beneficial or pathologic in the setting of human evolution. Thank you, Mandy. So um, the next question is uh, for Sujan, and it's from Jason, a CARTA student, and he asks, in much the same way that malaria has indirectly resulted in phenotypic changes in humans, e.g. sickle cell and thalassemia, has the competition between dengue and Zika produced any adjunct phenotypic changes in humans, deleterious or otherwise? And, and I would like to add, you know, um, are there other examples of viruses that have left an imprint on the human genome? Yes, that's a, that's a really um, great question from both of you. Um, one of the most interesting and very understudied aspect of dengue infection in humans is these viruses, they circulate in Africa, but we don't really hear about dengue being a major problem in Africa. In fact, all four serotypes, Zika, all these different flaviviruses are co-circulating and usually this co-circulation of multiple different dengue serotypes, multiple different viruses, is not a good outcome in terms of how that impacts um, 
dengue disease severity. And based on a couple of um, anecdotal studies done in Cuba, it seems that the African genetic diversity perhaps may be protecting that those individuals from coming down with a severe form of dengue infection. And in, whereas in the case of people in Asia and people in the Americas, both North and South, um, um, people can come down with severe dengue. Um, so in terms of how these um, this interactions between the viruses and the human host, that is a really important question, vastly understudied. And I think um, that really calls to people in the field to start studying um, these flu virus infections in Africa. And, you know, that's a huge understudied topic. Yeah. Can I just follow up and ask, is, is part of this just under, uh, you know, just being understudied? You know, because they just say you, get, you have a fever and they just assume it's malaria. And, um... Yes. So just like exactly the same issues that we're facing with in terms of the, the healthcare system of a given country determines what kind of case numbers you're seeing with COVID. It's the same thing with, in the case of Flavies, um, um, for Zika, for, and in the case of uh, all four star types of dengue in Africa, we don't really know the true incidence of both the mild and the severe consequences of these viral infections. And it really, again, it's the unfortunate reality of the world we live in is this different types of healthcare system and infrastructure to be able to diagnose and detect these infectious diseases. Okay. Um, I'm gonna ask the next question to um, Manuela. Um, how much is known about the spread of salmonella and whether it mirrors the out of Africa movement of ancient human populations? And are there examples of uh, salmonella anthropinoses, meaning like where humans infected animals with salmonella? So those are two very nice and interesting questions. And um, we are learning a little bit about how salmonella was present in ancient humans. Uh, thanks uh, to the advancement in genomics, for example, we are able now to um, isolate uh, genomes uh, from uh, um, ancient humans. And actually this February, uh, there was a very interesting study um, where they showed that they were able to isolate uh, salmonella from humans 6,500 years ago. And um, that led to the hypothesis that salmonella might have emerged in humans with the Neolithic revolution, when humans switched basically from hunting and gathering to farming. And uh, the idea is always that salmonella has been spread from the animals to humans really with the advent of farming. But uh, something interesting that came also from this study uh, is that, uh, um, uh, for example, animals are blamed exactly from transmitting salmonella to people. But uh, salmonella in pigs has actually been found as 4,000 years ago. Uh, so this led to the hypothesis that it's actually humans who transmit uh, salmonella to pigs. And, uh, and yes, now pigs are sources of salmonella, but it seems that were humans first. Um, so some animals transmitted to humans and then humans eventually transmitted to pigs. So I think, uh, you know, in general, we can consider salmonella as the non-typhoidal salmonella has a zoonosis because they are transmitted from humans. 
but uh, at some point we were the source of salmonella for the pigs. So we cannot blame the pigs for giving salmonella to us uh, like 6,500 years ago. Thank you. So the next question is for Sue. And the question is, what class of pathogens shaped our immune system most strongly? Viruses, bacteria, protozoan pathogens, or metazoan parasites? Yeah, thanks. I, I, I really like this question. It's something I've thought about myself, uh, but I I'm not going to be able to give an extremely satisfying answer. I think this is something that we um, still cannot necessarily uh, provide metrics on. Um, but you can think about some of the events that have probably had the largest influence. One from a genetic perspective uh, on, our, on our genomes would be founder effects. And it, you know, we've had outbreaks and pandemics of the past where there were you know, significant um, uh, ma magnitude of death in the human population. Obviously, that is going to have a founder effect and have a major impact on, the, the, on, our, on our genome. Um, that are, are that we propagate. The um, second is the prevalence of the pathogens, and I think this is something that's more about adaptation and how our, we uh, coexist with in a, in a more endemic way. As we we clearly can see genetic, uh, we just discussed some of them: genetic um, uh, uh, under uh, gen gen you know, genetic alleles and, and changes that are, are are maintained within the population as a consequence of the um, coexistence with certain pathogens. There is um, a, a little bit of evidence as well that are the that are the the regions of greatest diversity in our genome, such as our major histocompatibility complex, which is the MHC, which is what is used to present the foreign antigens to to our immune cells such as our t cells to to see uh, the pathogens that these the diversity in the poly, the high level of polymorphism in these alleles is shaped by uh, in some ways by certain pathogens more than others and i think this has been probably best seen uh, in looking at another region of our genome which is in our immunoglobulin genes such as the ones that create the the, the re the rearranged receptors for our T cell receptor and our, and our B cell receptor are, that produce the antibodies, that these uh, germline encoded regions of, say, regions of those, of those variable domains, for instance, that are found in the antibodies, that the germline sequence of those already has natural affinity for certain pathogens, such as influenza. So we probably have evolved uh, naturally moderately affinity, you know, uh, proteins that have moderate affinity for some pathogens that we've encountered that have some uh, evolutionary advantage to, to responding to those, but obviously there's still um, uh, further adaptation that must happen with the immune response for better protection. So, um, so and then, and then um, our innate immune system, which is our germ line uh, you know, hardwired form of defense that we evolve with, that certainly has been shaped by the pathogens. But to, to answer the question more specifically about which class, I don't think it's going to be a particular class that's more effective. I think it's going to come from the ways in which we've adapted to our environments and, and these particular uh, events that might have happened over history that uh, had major founder effects on our genome. Thank you. Yeah. Victor? Okay. Um... 
Well, I'm going to ask uh, the next question. I guess it could be to the group, but I'm going to focus it first to Elizabeth because she's equally accomplished as a geneticist, as an infectious disease specialist. Uh, the malaria pestilence has resulted in several diseases as a byproduct in regions where it's endemic, like sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Are there any pathogens outside of malaria endemic regions that have analogously produced byproduct diseases in which, say, human heterozygotes uh, yeah. experience a protective benefit? So, um, well, this was, I, I will start to answer it, but you might know better than me, and maybe Manuela can chime in as well. And um, I'm thinking of um, mutations, uh, the cystic fibrosis uh, genes, and, and uh, how they may protect, provide protection against cholera. Um, so uh, there is a theory out there that uh, the cystic fibrosis allele maintains which affects, I believe, a, a sodium or a chloride, a chloride channel. And this is maintained in the population because it pr protects against uh, cholera, uh, which was a big killer um, of children as well. And if Manuela or Victor, if you, if you can think of some other examples, uh, please feel free to chime in. TB? Well, um, I guess, you know, with respect to cholera, yeah. So the CFTR is a... Is a anion uh, uh, pump that uh, produces, you know, releases chloride and um, bicarbonate. And uh, I guess mutations uh, impairing its function could reduce the, the massive volume of secretory diarrhea uh, experienced there. Actually, it's very interesting that Ajit uh, Varki and Nissi and their mouse lines uh, that they're developing um, they uh, have humanized the sialic acid repertoire in a way that some of the uh, toxins uh, that are produced by enteric pathogens, including cholera toxin and uh, toxins from salmonella, um, are uh, you know uh, less severe, and uh, that might allow us to breed those mice uh, together with. Uh, you know, the CFTR mice uh, and find out whether there is indeed uh, a protection once you uh, humanize the background. Because right now, uh, a lot of the mice just aren't susceptible to the, the human pathogens for us to answer those questions. Manuela, do you have some comments? Yeah, I would like to just comment on the fact that I always found the genetics of resistance to malaria very fascinating. And I've been familiar with this my entire life because I'm from the island of Sardinia, where basically everybody has either a beta thalassemia trait or the other trait that is also associated with resistance to malaria, which is the G6PD deficiency. And I can tell you in every family, there is either one or the other. Um, and I think that my island is really the best example of how the entire population has evolved to be, uh, to, be re to be resistant to malaria and how the heterozygous for G6PD or uh, beta thalassemia are so widespread. And I really, there is one in every family, even in mine. Yeah. I'll mention one uh, more thing related to uh, a pathogen that was discussed today, group B streptococcus. Um, there is a human uh, mutation in a SIGLEC receptor uh, pair. So normally, 
uh, humans could be said to have both an inhibitory SIGLEC and an activating SIGLEC that are paired in terms of their same binding interaction uh, with uh, uh, ligands on the outside, but one uh, transmits a positive signal to the immune cell and the other a negative signal. Uh, about half of the humans have uh, a matched pair that balances inflammation, and uh, the other half of the humans are, have a mutation in the activatory one, so they only have uh, the inhibitory uh, SIGLEC. And we found um, in screening a uh, population of um, patients who had had uh, premature delivery of which uh, group B streptococcus is an important uh, risk factor, uh, that there was an association of the um, having the hyperinflammatory phenotype um, um, uh, with uh, a greater uh, uh, risk of prematurity and published that a while ago. Yeah, I had one other thing that I wanted to add to that um, that line of thought, and, and it's something that we haven't really discussed today much, uh, which is tuberculosis. And tuberculosis, of course, is one of the big uh, killers as well um, and, and has had a major impact on the human genome, I think. And, and I don't know how well this is accepted, but, um, you know, there is some, um, you know, there is a hypothesis that, that, uh, that human skin color, especially for people that live in, that, that you know, adapted to northern climates, um, part of the adaptation for a lighter skin color uh, comes because you, it, it provides more vitamin D and it allows you to survive better, uh, possibly survive infection from tuberculosis. Um, so some people believe that the light skin color may be a response to, to tuberculosis. Should I ask the next question, I guess? Uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I think there was a, a question uh, for um, Chip that I think a lot of people have asked, and of course it's been uh, in the news, and, um, and it's about whether uh, and wildlife and human interactions in general, and how do we know uh, that uh, coronavirus is developed in bats? There's been a lot of, um, of effort to capture bats in multiple different uh, locations um, and uh, study coronaviruses and other uh, uh, viruses that bats carry. They evolved without a, um, uh, without a bone marrow and uh, they do that because they can fly better uh, being lighter and that leaves them with an uh, immune response that allows them to uh, be a lot more tolerant of, uh, of, of uh, ongoing uh, carriage of, of, of an agent uh, without uh, clearing it. They, uh, so they are really good at uh, being able to um, you know, serve as flying flasks uh, with uh, quite a bit of, uh, of um, viral replication going on and then within them and then opportunities for viruses to mix within the, an individual bat and within bat populations. They live in very large colonies. So they're really socially uh, and immunologically set up uh, to be a, an interchanger of, of viral genetics. And when you look in bat populations, you see a large number of uh, variant coronaviruses that are always exchanging RNA and, uh, and evolving and then periodically spilling over to other species. So they really are kind of a, of a, 
cauldron that periodically boils over and we uh, happen to uh, to be on the wrong end of the of the um, of it catching on it's been going on I'm sure for thousands of years and um, uh, there are so many related coronaviruses and bats it's hard to go back sometimes this this coronavirus is a good example and say this virus came across at this point in time because the coronaviruses and people are actually more diverse with the SARS-CoV-2 than people initially thought so this virus didn't just kind of show up uh, in a pangolin, as people initially speculated in December of, of uh, 2019. This virus has been sh- spilling over the human population off and on for a while, and then finally managed to catch on and spread. Uh, one of the things that has happened that's different with the wildlife populations is, these. although these events have been going on for a long time, uh, we've done two things that have made it easier for the viruses to play with each other. One is we put a lot of these species together in small uh, small cramped conditions that wouldn't normally be together in shedding pathogens and allow um, related um, uh, viruses to spread among uh, quite a variety of species in a given location at a given point in time. Uh, uh, we also do this by creating large populations of animals with breeding facilities and, and uh, and um, uh, for um, uh, our food supply. And finally, we've given uh, viruses the opportunity when a spillover does occur that might well have died out in a small village to make its way out of the village with transportation and out of the country with air, air, air transportation and converted the human population uh, on the planet uh, to a basically uh, a large mixing bowl as opposed to a large uh, collection of small populations that evolve within themselves and develop genetics, uh, as we uh, uh, heard about Sardinia, um, that deal with local pathogens. And now we have to think about ourselves as a global community in which the entire population of the world might have to rapidly evolve uh, as a pathogen comes along, which we're not able to do. Uh, And so I think our current um, both interaction with animals and animal husbandry, and as we began to deforest uh, areas and, and move into areas where animals that we normally wouldn't come in contact with, we're in contact with more often. This is the speculation about Ebola, coupled with giving these viruses a way out of where they initially are uh, come in contact with us with transportation has been what's amplified things that have been going on for a long time on a much smaller scale. Oh, actually, I have, a, I have a question for Sue that's kind of just sort of my question. And it's always, uh, the lab always gives me a hard time. And they always say, I never get sick. And it might be because I have an office and they don't. Um, and it also may be because I had two kids that went to public daycare and um, I got everything. But um, the other question is, the other thing that I do is I always religiously get my flu vaccine. And so the question is, if you get your flu vaccine every year for 20 years, um, are you then more protected against all the sort of sub-strains that might be out there? And uh, does this, um, you know, even though you might not have the, the, the what, you might not be vaccinated against the one that's out there for that particular flu season? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think logically you would think that, yeah, the more vaccines you were to encounter, you would develop a broader, you know, and assuming that the drift in the influenza virus in particular, as an example, was um, sufficiently uh, expanding 
the different types of viral strains you were exposed, your body was exposed to, I would think that naturally it could allow for wider, broader immunity to various flu strains. But actually one thing that has been um, seen, especially from the H1N1 swine flu epidemic that we had uh, in 2009, 2010, was that there, there are some more you know, broadly neutralizing antibodies to the to more conserved features of the influenza virus, like the stock domain of the hemagglutinin, mm -hmm. so the more stem region of it, which um, was found that people who had pre-existing stock antibodies, now whether they got them from a prior influenza infection or because of vaccines, uh, those those patients oftentimes had had more um, you know had less severe outcomes with, with swine flu and, were, and had, were able to recover uh, more in a more healthy way. But other than studies in mice had shown that if you do give a vaccine you, uh, that is against different flu strains, actually where you won't have um, uh, antibody-mediated defenses to the, um, the hemagglutinin portion, that's the most immunogenic and, and variable portions of the virus, that you will, if you give a vaccine from one strain and then a, a different strain for which there wouldn't be this um, antibody cross-reactivity, you would have the ability to uh, boost these uh, antibodies to the stock domain, so the more conserved features. So, so I think that whether or not that's been shown reproducibly in humans across the years of giving flu vaccines, because now this is being monitored more, uh, more each year because it's, it's, it's you know, a more routine way of looking at uh, human vaccine responses. Uh, but so it's possible to develop, I think, more cross-reactive protective immunity by giving more different types of vaccines to say flu. Um, so I'm always a proponent of the flu vaccine. So <laughs> keep doing it. Yeah. Okay, well, we are coming to the end of our uh, hour, and I'm going to throw one last question out there because it's uh, forward-minded, and uh, I'll direct it first uh, to Sujan, but then uh, others could chime in. Um, Dengue and Zika are just two recent viruses that our species is currently facing. Uh, there must be more. Uh, to come. What do we know about the next one? Do you think that understanding cross-reactivity will give insight into how to fight it before it appears or even preventing it? Um, great question. Um, and I think all of us will probably um, have different ways to tackle this question. Um, I keep on talking about dengue and Zika, but what I forgot to tell you during my talk is there are 70 known flaviviruses. And that means, think about that. We know about dengue, Zika, West Nile virus, Japanese encephalitis virus, yellow fever. These are already severe, these are already flaviviruses that can cause devastating severe consequences in humans. Zika emerged in 2016, and with 70, over 70 known filviruses, I can name a whole slew that can potentially emerge. And so this concept of cross-reactivity, we really need to understand the rules. How do we harness the good aspects? So in the, in the animal models, in our labs, it's really easy and fun to manipulate 
different aspects of this cross-reactive immunity and try to dissect what gives you immunity, cross-protective immunity, what gives you this cross-protective pathogenesis. And in terms of solving these problem that relate with, with these viruses that, have, that share this immunological cross-reactivity, what we want to do is harness these good aspects, the cross-protective immunity, and avoid this ADE type of phenomena. And I think it is doable. We need to look at more, more um, studies using animal models and, of course, humans in the context of different flu viruses, different coronaviruses, just like with the, with um, a chip just mentioned, there are so many coronaviruses, I think we need to think about, and same thing with different um, uh, strains of influenza. So what this is telling us is we really need to understand this cross-reactivity, both from the positive side and the negative side, harness that knowledge so we can, the world can develop a vaccine, not just against this one virus, but if we really think about a lot of these infectious diseases are impacting these resource poor countries. And immunologically, if you have the both yin and the yang, and these are resource poor countries, it doesn't make sense for us to think about developing one vaccine for um, every single infectious disease. So we can use these good aspects and try to develop how about a pan flavy vaccine so that countries in Asia, they don't have to worry about Japanese encephalitis virus, dengue and Zika. The Americas, we have to think about the yellow fever. You know, Brazil, poor Brazil made news in 2018 and 19. They went through dengue, 2016, they went through Zika. They made news in 2018 for um, yellow fever. 2019, you're not going to believe this, they had the highest ever incidence in record of severe dengue infections. So this is a vicious cycle. The world, it's not logical, it's not economical to think about one vaccine, one antiviral, one drug against one of these viruses. We really need to understand this cross-protective immunity, the both the good and the bad. And that's a really good question that the, um, the person in the audience asked. Chip, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think uh, I agree with everything that uh, Shouldn't said. I think the other thing is that we should not lose sight of the fact that even though we may not know what's coming next, we know that something will come next. And we seem to forget about that every time we have one of these outbreaks. Uh, we, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong learned a lot about what to do uh, when SARS-1 rolled through, and they were much more ready for SARS-2 than we were. We watched what happened and then did nothing, and we allowed our uh, public health responses to uh, to uh, decay, and we don't have enough people in San Diego County Health Department to trace people with SARS-CoV-2, which is one of the reasons the virus continues to rage out of control. So we should learn from this uh, that although we may not be smart enough to know what virus is coming next or what pathogen is coming next, we know that when one comes, we have to be prepared to deal with it. And that requires uh, having advanced diagnostic equipment out on the front line so we see it coming with more foresight. It requires having a broad vaccine platform so that we have uh, vaccine platforms that can be applied to multiple different pathogens. We're obviously uh, betting on RNA vaccines here for uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the U.S. Other countries are betting on other technologies, but having those platforms in an adaptable way out there so we can uh, bring them to the table with any pathogen is very important to do and understanding how to use them is critical. Um, and uh, having uh, a... Um, 
uh, an understanding that we can't stop these agents by stopping airplanes from flying or by building walls. Uh, we are now a global community, whether we like it or not. And we have to be prepared to deal with this as a global community. Uh, even if we wall it out uh, of a small area, this virus, these viruses will continue to spread around us and will eventually get in. So we need, uh, as a global community, to solve the problem for the world, and that solves it for ourselves too. So that's my last polemic and uh, obnoxious statement directed at um, our poor response uh, to this uh, one. We need to do better next time. Okay, thank you, Chip. I think that that's uh, fantastic and probably couldn't find a more fitting uh, ending note uh, for the questions, bringing it right back uh, to our present predicament. Um, I personally want to thank uh, all of uh, the speakers and especially the audience uh, for such um, a fascinating and educational dialogue that we've had today and um, pass it over to my co-chair, Elizabeth Winsler, for the very last word. Yep. Um, I just, again, this has been a really fantastic set of talks. I learned a lot, and um, the, the questions from the audience were really uh, spot on. So um, thank you all for joining us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.